The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we've come here on, on one level for a bunch of reasons this morning. We've come here because this is the place we always come on Sunday morning. We come here because somebody invited us. We come here because we really long to be around the people of God. We come here to be encouraged. We come here for many reasons. But behind all that, Lord, the reason that you mean for us to come here is so that we would meet with you and be refreshed by you. So we meet with you in, in a bunch of different ways here this morning, in, in fellowship and in song and in prayer and in listening to and considering your word. We, we meet with you in all these different ways, but above that, Lord, we, we just ask However you want to introduce yourself to us this morning, please do that. Through the distractions and through the concerns, through the, the, the cries of our hearts, Lord, would you draw near and introduce yourself to us again? Show us who you are. Show us your beauty. Show us your goodness. Show us your glory. Refresh us with yourself this morning, please. We sing and we pray and I'm about to preach and we'll listen and we'll consider. Please, Lord, in it, show us your glory. Introduce yourself to us again and refresh us. And particularly from this passage, Lord, would you, would you show us yourself right alongside of, we've, we've already sung and prayed and thought some about, we just prayed about shame. We've, we've thought in some ways about some things in our past, some things that we've done. Would you show us yourself right alongside of those things, not instead of those things, but with them? And refresh us with yourself in the midst of the yuck. Would you give us a way to walk, to walk at rest with you? Maybe there are some here this morning who particularly have some need along that line. Would you bring the yuck alongside of you and refresh that one, refresh each one of us? Make your word clear here this morning. Build your people. Honor your name. You are a good God. Bring times of refreshing to our hearts now this morning, please. We trust this to you and say thank you. Thank you. Amen. We were all sitting in the living room with dessert in hand, 
in a very ordinary-looking two-story home in middle America. And I asked the 30-something-year-old couple sitting on the opposite couch the most ordinary of questions. So, how'd you two meet? And it's been a number of years now, but as I remember it, as I think she said it, this clearly in just about this many words, well, I was a prostitute and he was my pimp. You don't say. Oh, okay. Where do you go with that? I did not see that coming. And as we kept talking, I kept being surprised. Not in the end, by the fact that these folks had a past. Lots of 30-something and 50-something-year-old folks in middle America and in Salt Lake, including us, including all of us, have a past. We all do. Periods of time, moments in time, that day, that thing. We all have something or some things that we really would not want published in the newspaper and really wish if if we could, we could scrub it out of our minds and just erase it from our lives. Things that we are ashamed of and things that we're embarrassed by and things that are, are, are sometimes a great burden to us. And things that therefore then very, very easily can be exploited to produce a sense of condemnation in the quiet of your own heart, even if nobody else knows. We all have a past, and so that wasn't actually what was most surprising about that. What was most surprising about that conversation that went on from, from that introduction, and what was most encouraging, in fact, was how this couple proceeded to explain how they dealt with their past sin and brokenness, how they face it and how they think about it, and how they can stand to talk about it to people like us, and how they plan to talk about it to their kids one day. That was really different. There, there was no rationalization, no avoidance or denial, no, no saying, well, you know, we had to do what we had to do, or we were foolish back then, or, 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 or no, none of that. No platitudes, no glorification of evil. And also, no soul-crushing remorse, and no self-medicating addiction, and no working, 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 performing so as to, to, to show themselves better, to show that was the old me, I'm, I'm better than that, I'm not that, that's not me anymore, I'm, I'm now worthy of, of being accepted by you and by society. None of that, which was surprising. In fact, what they did was they just talked about and really sang about and, and almost like preached to us, delighted about the grace and the mercy of God to them in Christ. That was very surprising. But just like the Apostle Paul would have them to do. And they were joyously whole. Just like the Apostle Paul and like Jesus would have them to be. And just like we want to be in the midst of all of our past. And that's what brings us to our passage today in Colossians 1. Last week we looked at verses 15 to 20 in this, in this chapter 1. 
And the emphasis there was on the supremacy of Christ, his preeminence, his first rank, his first place, his first status, because he's the creator and the sustainer of all that is, and then also because he's the one in whom the fallen, broken world is repaired and made new again. The words in the text about reconciled and made peace, that's the note of reconciliation that carries into our three verses this morning. And what was about the creation in general is now discussed with particular application. How are particular individual people reconciled to God and made to be at peace with him, made to be whole with him? That's what we're going to consider today. In this really short passage, just three verses in Colossians 1, 21 to 23. Let me read it, and then I'll make two observations from it. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Colossians 1. I'm going to make two observations. Here's the first. God takes shameful enemies and makes them his honored friends. God takes shameful enemies and makes them his honored friends. That's, that's the truth that's in this passage. It's the truth that was shaping these, these friends of ours so long ago and gave them such vibrant and whole lives. And that's for us too. So we're going to look at that here in this passage. The reconciliation and, and the making peace of verse 20 right before this passage, it reminds us that all the creation in one way or another was was wrecked, broken, fallen. And it also reminds us that God did something about that. God acted to address it in the big picture. And that big picture focus then sets us up for something more personal. And you, the verse begins. And you, it's plural. He's talking to the whole church here. This is about something that has happened for Christians. So Christians can find here what we all once were. Christian, this is what you were, an enemy of God. Look at the words there, alienated. That's not just accidentally distanced from, inadvertently apart. It's, it's actually about purpose and intent. It, it's almost a formal verdict sort of statement. The result, alienation, separation from, the result of being, as it says, they're hostile in mind and in deed. Hostile in mind on, on the inner self and in deed, and what you do on the outside, the outer self. It's, it's the whole of your person in thinking and in feeling and in wanting apart from him, against him, and then in doing, resisting him turning away from him, 
Not acting in proper surrender to and honoring of God. Doing evil deeds. Big things and little things. We, we oftentimes hear that word evil and we think, man, that's, that's like really serious stuff. Anything that's not in submission to and obedience to and honoring God is evil. Little white lie, evil. Doing evil deeds, big things, little things. And the result of that, what that the place that that puts us, we can, we can see that by flipping around the positive in verse 22. The result of that, unholy, you flip the words around, full of blame, under reproach, that is, under accusation and condemnation. This resulting status was one of guilt and shame. You stood ready to be presented before the judge to face public, formal accusation and then public, formal condemnation, shame, judgment, all due to the fact that you were unrighteous and unholy in deed and in mind at odds with God, a shameful enemy. Well, that's bad news. Yeah, that's totally bad news. Totally. It's the condition of the world apart from Jesus. But that's, well, it's bad news. That's, that's not news to a Christian. We know that was us before Christ. And, and it's not news to the Colossians. I mean, it's, it's a church he's writing to. He's not writing then to inform them. So you've got to kind of get inside the text and say, so why is that here? If this isn't intended for the Colossians or for us to say, like, that's really? That's me? That was me? If it's not the goal to inform you so that you realize something, then, then why is it here? What's it doing? It's not. Some, sometimes we think, well, what that's about is that God in some way wants to, kind of like sometimes when the dog does something on the carpet you don't want there, you grab them behind the neck and you rub their nose in it. Now, we don't like officially say that, but we, th we think that sometimes. That what this is about is God grabbing me and saying, Look at what you've done. Look at how you were. Don't do that again. So he's trying to shame me so as to reform me. Not at all. Not at all. God, who is not like that angry master of a dog, God, God's not like that. God who cares about you is not trying to shame you. And God's not remotely interested. In fact, wants to make really clear that he's not about trying to get us to reform ourselves. This is not about, this is how bad you were, so you better shape up. No, 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 no. Okay, so why is it here? What, what is it about then? What's it for? It's not trying to shame me or not trying to get me to reform myself. Well, the point here really is not about what we're supposed to do, but about what God has done. It's here this, this passage is, is about what God has done about all of that. But what God has done to remove and change that. Paul wants a context here in which we can see something and be reminded of something and, and can set something right alongside of. We can bring in our past and we can set it right alongside of so that then he can reveal something. He can introduce or reintroduce or remind us of, of God in all of his glory so as to stoke the fire of our appreciation of that glory. 
He's creating a context here because that's what we once were, shameful enemies of God. But, verse 22, now something else is. Something else is. He has made us honored friends. God did this for us. Look at the language there is not about what we did. God himself reconciled us. He reconciled. He did it. God changed us so as to fix the broken, to fix the alienation. He reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. God restored you to relationship to himself in Christ, in Christ's human body dying on the cross. This is how God in power and in wisdom and in love and in grace with much mercy came to us to draw us to himself. Verses 15 to 20, that's Christ, the preeminent one, the creator of all, the sustainer of all. That one came to earth and took on a body, a human body, a body of flesh, it says, not just to bleed for us, like when beaten, or bleed for us when, when the crowns are crushed into his head, or bleed for us when he prayed drops of blood in the garden. No, to bleed, that is to die in his death. That's what we mean by blood in verse 20. His death on the cross. He came to earth and went to the cross and died there, absorbing the right wrath of God that was coming to me for all of my past, against me and all of my sin. He himself had none. Of course, he had never been hostile towards God. He had never been hostile in his mind. He'd never done evil deeds. He'd never been alienated from him. But in fact, he's the beloved son with whom the God, God the Father is well pleased. And that one took onto himself what was due to us. By his own initiation, he did it. And so we, included in him, we die with him and we rise with him to new life. And we are welcomed before God. When it says we will be presented, we are welcomed before God as an honored member of God's family. Totally different than you were before. This is the gift of God to you. See the language there. He, to be presented in order to present you. This is God's purpose, that God wants to present you. God did this so that he could present you. He could bring you before his judging presence. And picture the scene. This God who knows all, this God who sees all, this God who is holy, 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 he will bring you into his very presence. He will look at you personally and say, I know everything about you. I see every detail. I see every moment. I know it all. And I accuse you of. Nothing. The accuser right over there will say, Whoa, 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 wait. Do you know, you righteous judge? Do you know about? Say, Of course, yeah, I know about that. Did you hear me? I see all. I know all. Uh, yeah. I accuse her of nothing. I see all and I blame him for nothing. And you're going to sit there and think, 
Does he know about? Yeah. Indeed. Yep. For sure. All of it. And blames you for nothing. That's his goal. In order to, he wants to be able to bring you to that spot and say, I blame you for nothing. I accuse you of nothing because I see you. I see in you. I see everything about you. And I see you in Christ. Remember that real shorthand way of talking about being in Christ, like the balloon in the air? I see you. You're the air inside the balloon. And I look at you and I'm looking through the balloon. And I see the balloon. You are clothed in one who himself is holy and righteous and blameless. You, risen in him, are holy and righteous and blameless, a pure and spotless bride. That's how I see you. And I wanted to create this moment so that you could understand that's how I see you. That's who you are because you're in him. I did that on purpose in order to present you this moment right here so that you could get something of what it's like to be forgiven. And so then you could experience this. Now I see you and I'm going to pour out on you. What, what are you gonna, what's he going to pour out on you? What's he going to pour out on you? If he accuses you of nothing, if he blames you for nothing, if he sees you as holy and sees you as in Christ, what's he going to pour out on you? The Bible talks a lot about pouring out the cup of the wrath of the fury of God. But that's not what he's going to pour out on you. He's going to pour out on you grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And when that cup's empty, there's going to be another cup of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace forever and ever and ever and ever. It's really hard to talk about exhaustively and accurately what that means because we have no idea what it's like to live for eternity in the Flood-level pleasure of God. But that's what it's going to be. We have ideas. He presents to us, I'm going to pour out on you, if you change the word from, I'm going to pour out on your grace. I'm going to pour out on you free access to my presence. And in my presence there is joy. I'm going to pour out on you holy communion with me and with the people who themselves are all enjoying me in holy communion. I'm going to pour out on you, not just grace, I'm going to pour out on you a, a, a world in which there is perfect righteousness and perfect justice. I'm going to pour out on you a right to sit at my table and feast from my riches. Forever. It starts now and, in fact, stretches to forever. Why on earth should that be you? Why on earth should that be you, given your past? Verse 21, past, but then you know all the details of your past. You can think about all the stuff that you wish you couldn't think about. Uh, I, want, I want to bring up that stuff. I mean, this, this is maybe kind of counterintuitive. I, as I prayed, I want to bring up that stuff in your mind, the stuff you wish you didn't think about. Think about that for a second and put it right next to this Jesus. Put it right next to this truth. Why on earth, given that that's you, why on earth should this be true about you? Because God is a God of glorious grace. 
And God acted to reconcile you to himself, you whom he loves and sought and found and rescued. Why on earth should that be you? Because God loves you. And God chose to love you in Christ. And God chose to come get you and put you in him and carry you on to glory. That's why. Not because of anything you've done, but because of his grace. This is how he shows us his glory. Gaining a people for himself in a place cleansed of sin to enjoy him forever. Verse 21 is bad news, and verse 22 is good news. Verse 22 is good news. This is what he has done for you forever. And that's, that's the scope of forever, because he's talking about being presented, come before him. That, that's about forever. But that also, that starts now, and that has impact here, now. It's meant to, to touch this world too. What difference does it make for you today to know that this is your situation before God in, in the forever? What difference does it make? Well, how about this? Think of this. This at least resonates with me. We often tend to think of ourselves, to think of ourselves as blameless and okay or bad and wrong based on how good of a job we're doing at avoiding sin and doing good. So, avoiding sin, doing good, then I'm okay. And I'm allowed to feel good about myself. And I'm allowed to approach God smiling and, and expecting him to be pleased with me because I have been pleasing to him. I expect him to smile on me and, and I expect his help when I, when I ask him for something and what I need The other way around, if I haven't been really doing well at avoiding sin doing good, then, then not. When sin comes, then I'm not okay. I'm bad. And what then? Well, then what we tend to do, I think, is kind of put ourselves in time out for a little bit. We tend to do some penance, some good works to make up for it or to show that I, I am really sorry. Look, I, I do really want to reform. I do really want to be better and different and, and to, to kind of prove myself worthy of your, of your honor. So, so look, and we work, we act. And after we've done that for some amount of time, then we feel that it's okay to feel okay. It's okay to feel good about ourselves again, and, and it's okay to approach God and expect a smile from him and not reproach, and, and to expect blessing and not accusation, and, and help and not a wagging finger. Do you ever live like that? You, you know it's wrong, but do you ever live like that? I think we do. And that's a total burden. That's just us in our righteous performance determining the nature of our relationship with God. I think my relationship with God is okay because I've been doing okay. 
or I think my relationship with God is not okay because I've been doing not okay. That's me determining what it's like based on how I'm doing. And that leaves you wide open to pride and wide open to judgmentalism of others that always follows pride. If you're working really hard to, to do well before God and somebody else isn't, you're going you're to be judgmental towards them. And, and if you're succeeding or you think you are then, and they're failing, you're going to be judgmental towards them. But if, on the other hand, if, you, if you're failing and you're leaving yourself wide open and vulnerable to accusation from your enemy who will always seek to shame you, who will always seek to bring up your past and point out your present failing. And you will be gripped by that. So what a gift there is here. I think there's a, a great gift right here to view myself. I'm looking ahead at the future and I'm seeing what I'm going to be like, but I bring that to here now and I view myself Today, I view myself as blameless because of God's grace, because of God's reconciling work in Christ. If, you, if you'll get that and you'll see yourself today, moment by moment like that, you, you realize I don't, I don't reconcile myself to God and I can't re-alienate myself from God. That's, that's his verdict over me. Right next to each other, that's, that's his verdict over me. He, he, he trumps all my past, he, he trumps me. Good news. That frees you to rejoice and, and frees you to come to God as an open book. Frees you to come to God humble and yet confident. And ironically, that's the kind of God, that's the kind of kind God that our hearts are, are naturally made to love and naturally made to draw after, naturally made to want to follow. It's his kindness that moves us to repentance. So what, what comes from that, ironically, is, is a life that follows him more closely by knowing that my following isn't what makes me secure with him. Now, again, probably if you're, if you're a Christian, probably a bunch of these details here you've, you've sorted out, you've heard before. Here they are again. Throw a log on the fire and let it burn. Be stoked up with that. This is a God who has been so good to you. So good to you. So kind. What a gift there is. And I think wonderfully that helps us not just to rejoice before God and to live whole before God, but to rejoice and to live whole before other people in in, in all the other ways that we, we live in the world, this is, this is how to be freed, freed from the performance trap, I think. And I'm not talking about not wanting to be good at something, not wanting to be excellent at something. I'm talking about unhooking, freeing, un, unhooking my wholeness, my rest from how I'm doing. how I'm doing at my job, how I'm doing at parenting, how I'm doing academically, how I'm doing athletically. Pe people are going to accuse me. People are going to point out my weaknesses or I'm going to fear my weaknesses and fear my failures. But if, if I have actually decoupled my wholeness, my rest, if you've separated your wholeness, your rest, your joy, your contentment 
from how you're doing at whatever you're doing, then you'll be able to look at that honestly and say, I, I'm not actually dependent on that. So, how do I improve? What do I do? You can look at it and, and be helpfully detached. You can rest and even rejoice secure in the hand of God. That, that's a blessed life now before people, now before God. And one day when you are presented before him, glory. This is good news. This is yours in Christ because God made you his honored friend. Second observation then. This is the only message that works. And so we must hold on to it tight. This is the only message that works, and so we must hold on really tightly to it. Verse 23 begins with an if. All of this, I'm just saying, all of this is true if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So there's the condition on which all this is true for someone. You had to have heard the gospel, the good news, this, this message that Paul was just talking about, we were just talking about it, and Paul's been talking about it several times before. Heard the message of Christ crucified to pay for sin and trusted that place, your personal faith in Christ, his death on the cross for you. That's our only hope. And you can't depart from that gospel, from that faith. But I have to continue on in the faith, in, in this message and belief. If you're steadfast and don't depart from this faith, you'll be presented before God, blameless and holy and reconciled. That's the if-then. If. Which tells us a couple things, that if. It tells us, importantly, what we have to keep on doing. We'll say more about that in a minute. Before that, it makes clear the exclusive nature of this message. This is the only message that works. If someone says to you, you can be cured of this disease if you take this medicine, this one. You're very careful not to switch from it, to, do, to take something else, this one. There are lots of cures out there, lots of offered cures out there, but don't go there. This is the one you have to take. Don't go to another one. If you take this one, you'll be cured. What's going on there? If I say that to you, what, what am I saying? I'm, I'm claiming to be an expert, to be knowledgeable, and I'm claiming to know that this one and only this one is the one that works. And it will accomplish the desired healing. Well, Paul has already declared that he is the knowledgeable expert. He's appointed and sent by God. As it says at the very end of our passage, he's been made a minister of this message, of this gospel. The message sent from God, sent to all creation under heaven. Verse 23 says. So Paul's telling us there, if you want to be cured, you have to hold tight to this one and, and don't go on to anything else. This is the only message that works. 
In fact, he's supporting that claim. You gotta follow this argument here a little bit. It's a subtle argument, but he's supporting it with an argument that he's making in the second half of verse 23. With a reminder that this message, the gospel that they heard, is indeed the one that's gone to all of the earth. It's gone to all the creation. The universal spread is evidence that this is the true message from God. Think about it. The God of all the earth, the God who made everything that is, and the God who wants to redeem that from fallenness and brokenness, and the God who wants to redeem from all of the earth the people of every tongue and tribe and nation to himself from, from every corner of the globe, if he were to do that, he would not reserve the truth that works to accomplish that. He would not reserve it and keep it hidden up in some little small spot, hidden in some little esoteric circle of, of elite knowers. He'd spread it out everywhere. Like happened with this message, like Paul's been doing. And such a God, when he, when he spreads it out everywhere, when it, when it goes to all the corners of the earth, when it goes there, God would confront all false religion and all the idolatry of humanity in an open and clear and non-manipulative way. Wouldn't he? Because he's the God of truth. So that's what Paul's been doing. Paul's Paul's talked about that very, very openly. He says, here's, here's all the facts. We, we lay it all out there. In, in the, the book of Acts, when Paul's on trial, he says to one of his accusers, look, you know all the facts. This was not done in a corner. This was done in public. It was done right over there. And there's the tomb. And here's 500 people who saw him alive. It, people know all that. It's right here in the open for everybody to see and for everybody to consider and for everybody to weigh out. And we shun all attempts at manipulation and coercion and force. You shouldn't, be, you shouldn't be required to, to dive into some secret cave or to hear something from some trusted man, some guru or, or some, some teacher, some prophet who's, who says, here's something private that I heard all by myself. It would be open and public, laid out for all to see, with no manipulation, letting people embrace it or reject it without fear from human threat, just like Paul does, just like this gospel does. Now, sure, over the years, Christians have gotten that all wrong in all sorts of ways. Sure. To our shame. But always in part, and usually in large part, this has been the pattern for, for this faith, for this message. It is openly proclaimed everywhere on all the earth and laid out for hard cross-examination. Nothing like biblical Christianity, nothing like the Bible has been examined and cross-examined and criticized and ridiculed 
and we put it out there in the open. Here. Commended without coercion. It's only hidden when it's violently chased into hiding. It prefers the light of day. This message. It can stand it because this gospel is the truth and it alone works to heal people, those who trust it. Which gets to the second part of what we learn from if. The if points out this message alone works, and the if also points out how we have to respond to it. We have to grab it in faith and hold on tight to it. Continue to trust it. He has reconciled you and presents you holy and blameless before him if indeed you continue in the faith, holding on tight to this message, trusting this hope. We have to continue to have faith in this faith. We have to continue to hope in this hope, this gospel. For all of your life. You can't say, I, I hoped in that until I was about 43 or 44 years old, then I went to something else, but I'm okay. No. It's not how genuine faith works. We have to, to, to have faith in this faith for our whole lives. If you leave it, you will not be presented holy and blameless above reproach. That's clearly what Paul's saying. And he clearly tells us, persevere in trust and do not turn to something else. Which is a great and clear and very helpful warning to us. Which is sometimes confusing and troubling for us. Because we think too hard about it. We, we begin to think about it, we hear a phrase like that, and we, we think too hard, we think too theologically behind it. We get thinking about this passage or any number of other passages. There are a number of passages like this. And we start to wonder or worry if that, so if I continue on until I'm like 43 years old and then I go on to something else. So should I worry? Doesn't that if raise some doubt? I mean, should I doubt my salvation? Doesn't that raise doubt? Shouldn't I doubt my salvation? Somebody's thinking and worrying. And the answer is, of course, what's the answer? Yes. Yes, it does raise a question. Yes, you should doubt your salvation. If you are not continuing to trust this faith, to hope in this hope, this gospel that Paul preached. If and as you move away from this gospel and start to trust something else or some other combination of something else to make you holy and blameless and without reproach before God, if you move from this message to something else, you should indeed doubt your salvation. 
But if you don't move, don't doubt. Rest assured as you rest in what assuredly works. We get to asking too many theological questions about how warnings work. Warnings always work like this. Warnings never tack on like a list of caveats. Warnings just say, come on now. If you become a Muslim, you will perish, which is totally true. That's totally true. You could say that to me. Steve, if you become a Muslim, you will perish. Is that true? Yes. That's true. Because this is the only message that works. Islam does not. And we want to think, well, could you actually be? That's not the point. The point is, if you veer away, worry. So don't veer away and don't worry. This is sometimes confusing, but it need not be. But I know for some of us, you're still going, oh, I hope that's not me. I hope that's not me. I hope that's not me. I hope it's not me. I really, I'm wondering and I'm self-examining and I'm worried again. I hope it's not me. I sure hope that's not me. If you're saying, I sure hope that's not you, it's not you. I'm willing to talk with anybody afterwards, but let me say that to you. There's probably a couple people here I need to say this to. If you're worried, I hope that's not me. It's not. Paul presents this to the church in, in Colossae. He's, he's holding this up. He knows they're being subtly taught something else. And his expectation is, you're going to take what you've been subtly taught. I'm going to present the message to you again. I'm going to talk about this Jesus who is supreme and preeminent, who rules over all of the spirits. This gospel about his death on the cross to pay for sin, I'll, I'll present all that to you, and you'll say, whoa, whoa, wait, that doesn't match what I'm being taught. And it will be clear to you. But this is something else. Don't go to that. Don't veer away from that. Stay steadfast on the truth. And it'll be clear. There's not going to have to be any subtle wondering. I really hope that's not me. If you're hoping it's not you, it's not you. So what, what, is, he, what is in view here? What is he talking about? Well, certainly someone who jettisons the Christian faith altogether. But more likely it's a case of Christian message plus. Fancy word there would be syncretism. Think of something like synchronized watches to put, put two times together, make them match, make them work together. Syncretism puts together Christianity and something else and tries to make them work together. Maybe it's other religious practices added in by some teacher. Probably what they were facing in Colossae. So that what you're left with is something that still calls itself Christianity, but is not this message that Paul preached and therefore will not work. Don't go to that. Stay with this. Maybe it's a, it's a different belief system that affirms Christianity, right? As Paul says, that's true. And other formal religions, they also are all equally true. They all kind of work. They've got a, a lot of truth in them. They all work together. But that's not what Paul preached. Maybe it's an attempt to kind of meld together social and political causes and perspectives with, with the Christian message, never minding where it contradicts. Maybe it's just a drifting away 
so that you really, if, if you're honest, you say, I don't really think that, that Jesus is really that important. Nice, helpful, but not like, not like that. To all of that, Paul's warning is clear. There is no salvation in any other religion or in any other combination of faiths other than this biblical message that Paul preached. It alone is the only one that works. And so we have to hold on tight to it and be fully assured in it. I believe this, this is my only hope. I don't think anything else, nothing, nothing else works. I'm a sinner. Christ's cross work alone, not my work, that's what has reconciled me to him and made me blameless. Hold on tight to that and trust that. Rest assured then that in that you are blameless in his sight. In that you've been made his honored friend. In that you're saved to live holy and to live rejoicing with him. That's the message that works. And that's a God who is good, who's behind it. Trust him. Let me pray. Lord, here's our need for you to stand next to our past and speak over it grace and mercy. And so do that with people here now in whatever situations they find themselves, whatever pops into their mind. Do that now for them. Speak over their past grace and mercy, honored friend in Christ. Cause us to rejoice in him and to live freely in him. We look to you for this. Please give this to us now. Bless your people in this way. We trust this to you, Lord, and say thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.